0: to Psych Up Live with your host Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips.
1: Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Nationally and internationally, people are exposed to violence on a daily basis, we read about it in the paper, we see it in the images of violence on TV and online. And too many people, and people we know and love, have been personally exposed to or have suffered from some form of violence in their lives. This show is going to address the prevention of violence. We are so fortunate to have as our guest experts Dr. Sherry Hamby and Dr. Victoria Banyard. They are professors and recognized researchers who have dedicated careers to the study of violence prevention and will be drawing upon their new book, an amazingly thorough and comprehensive book, Strength-Based Prevention for Violence and Public Health Problems. Dr. Sherry Hamby, who is a return guest to Psych Up Live, is a research professor of psychology at the University of the South and director of the Life Paths Research Center. She's founder and co-chair of Resilience Con. She's an internationally recognized authority on victimization and trauma and is best known for her work in polyvictimization, resilience, and violence measurement. As a licensed psychologist, she's worked for more than 25 years on the problem of violence, and her research has led her to the publication of more than 200 articles and books. She has been ranked in the top 1% among more than 6 million researchers in 22 disciplines based on her citations to her work. She's joined by Dr. Victoria Banyard, a professor at Rutgers Where I graduated, uh, the State University of New Jersey, Associate Director of the Center on Violence Against Women and Children, and Associate Dean for Faculty Development. She has worked with colleagues across the U.S. and abroad to help shape at the national, state, and local level through a rigorous examination of violence prevention programs centered on a critical question. Do they work? She uses multiple methods, both quantitative and qualitative, to understand and answer that question. She has authored nearly two hundred articles and book chapters, and regularly teaches courses on the causes, consequences, and prevention of interpersonal violence. Dr. Sherry Hamby and Dr. Victoria Banyard. It is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you
2: so Thank much you for so having much. us today, Suzanne. Uh,
1: Oh, thank you. Okay, so let's start yeah. out with the question. You now are focused on prevention, and you're pre- you're calling it a stre- strength-based prevention model. What is Sherry? What is a strength-based prevention model?
2: Well, strength-based prevention is basically trying to prevent violence or substance abuse or anything like that. By building up people's resources and assets, so making them better at impulse control, at conflict resolution, at, at learning how to connect to something meaningful in their lives, something larger than themselves. And it's kind of the opposite of a lot of mainstream prevention, which is probably, you know, most easily summed up by that like just say no to drugs mentality, It's kind of admonishment programs that are you're sort of scolding people and telling them them what to do and what not to do instead of giving them the skills to lead thriving lives and and stay away from the pitfalls that, you know, that all of us have to navigate. Okay. So, so
1: Victoria, let me ask you, let's just think of young drug users um, and they've been hearing just say no. If I'm just learning about this, what's the difference with the approach you would be taking? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. So, a difference in the approach that, that we're taking is um, a couple of things related to your question. One is really trying to go upstream to really thinking about prevention, so before someone is making the cho- the choice to use substances and perhaps headed down the path of having some difficulties with that, but, but really trying to take a prevention approach by um, by intervening earlier, if you will. And that the focus of that intervention, right, is really on a number of the things that Sherry just described. It's about building the foundation of well being, the foundation for thriving and and having a good a good life. Um, giving helping to build relationship skills for building positive social supports and connections, providing opportunities for people to build purpose and meaning and be involved in activities, community engagement, whatever it may be in schools or what have you that gets them outside of themselves. And so it's really focusing on that broader perspective of building those strengths rather than just focusing on what's going wrong um, and, and focusing on that in particular, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. I think in one part of the book I read, you may never even mention at the beginning in a prevention program that we're going to talk about drugs or alcohol, because you're much more interested in developing, as you say, the strengths. And I remember in your work, Sherry, in the resilience, that you did a show on the resilience portfolio model, the idea of having a whole portfolio with strengths. Now you're drawing on a similar idea of offering a prevention portfolio model, right?
2: That's right. It, we are basing the prevention portfolio model on the resilience portfolio model. And it's really, uh, like Vicki said, just a, a shift in emphasis. So the basic idea behind the resilience portfolio model is that the, the way to overcome trauma is to help people Increase their their portfolio or their their dosage of strength. So to to put more good things in their lives, and you know even people who have really high burdens of prior trauma exposure are able you know to put together really good lives. I mean, some of the most accomplished people in the in the world have you know really high burdens of trauma exposure, um, and so the idea behind prevention portfolios is that a lot of those same processes and mechanisms, those same programs and interventions can help on the sort of insulation side too, that they can help insulate us from those kinds of problems before they start. Um, although I would also say that I think another element that, that Vicky was touching on is that you know, it's really kind of a different way of thinking about how problems emerge and, you know, and how people end up on the, the path to addiction or perpetration or whatever the case may be. And so the example I give a lot, um, you know, is with opioid abuse. And a lot of times people think, well, the way to not become addicted to opioids is just to, like, stay away from them forever. But that's not really a very good model of who becomes addicted to opioids and who doesn't at all. So I can take myself as an example. So I've had uh, two C-sections when my children were born, and I've had two root canals. And when I was much younger, I had my wisdom teeth out. And and after all of those, I was uh, prescribed opiate painkillers for coping with those surgical procedures, and I'm not addicted to opioids, and so, you know, a lot of substance abuse problems, just, you know, substance abuse programs just assume that the way to stop substance abuse from happening is like full-on abstinence, but, uh, you know, but for a lot of people are going to... um, you know, get prescribed some of these things over the years. Most people are going to at least experiment with alcohol and, you know, very high percentages experiment with marijuana. And of course, now marijuana is legal in very many states and mm-hmm. growing numbers of states. And our, our programs haven't really caught up to any of that. So there's actually a lot of people who use different kinds of substances, but don't progress to addiction. And we don't, we need to focus more on figuring out those processes and figuring out what those people are doing. And I think that it's the skills that we're talking about is that, you know, I didn't stay on those opioids because I had, I mean, I babies to take care of or, you know, projects to get back to. I mean, there were other things in my life that motivated me to, uh, to get back on track, you know, even though, I mean, I do have a fair amount of substance abuse among my Greater network of relatives, and so you might even say I might be uh, biologically at relative risk, but you know I still was able to shift because of the the other things that were happening in my life.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, let's take a step back and going right on that. So, if you, for instance, had an emotional regulation problem, you might have had some relief from that opioid after the dentist that you didn't ever have before, which might prime you to look for it again even as I say this I want to listen to know that I just used emotional regulation because and I'm going to ask Vicki if you would explain this the prevention strengths the strength-based preventions tell me if this is right really focus on or make use of three components that that they address for people could you talk about that Victoria It, it lends itself to what Sherry
3: was saying Sure, sure. So building from the resilience portfolio model into the prevention portfolio model, as Sherry was saying, in our research on the model, um, we really were able to sort of distill down or group the strengths that people told us about in hundreds of interviews as well as thousands of surveys um, into three buckets, if you will, or three types of strengths. Um, regulatory, interpersonal, and meaning making, and I'll I'll talk about each of them in turn. And so, regulatory strengths are what you're talking about in terms of um, emotion regulation, which is, which is about you know how do you help yourself feel better after something stressful happens or you have a negative experience, how do you bounce back from negative emotion to what extent, how do you deal with, with stress, with conflict inside yourself, right? Um, That way that you, you you know, emotions just are, right? They aren't good or bad. Um, It's what we do with them, but it's also, you know, how do we um, cope with those when they come up for us? And so those regulatory strengths are are really, really about that. A second piece is interpersonal strengths, which is about those relationship resources, social supports, and the skills. For those connections. Sherry alluded earlier to talking about conflict resolution kinds of skills, friendship forming skills, those sorts of things. And then also a a bucket or a third category, which I think does not get nearly enough attention, which is this idea of meaning-making strengths, which are really not just about an individual sense of purpose, but really about their connection to something outside themselves, whether it's through involvement in volunteering or mentoring or um, taking care of a family member. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that sort of get people outside themselves. And the idea is really that strengths can come from all of these these different potential resources and, and assets. And I would say that the two key things about the prevention portfolio model when we talk about those categories that I think are, are really important and that, that we try to bring out more in the book is that one is that, that these are not just determined by an individual. I think in psychology we get very focused on individuals and so we can think about regulatory strengths as something that a person has inside them or not and in the book we also really explore a lot of the research that talks about how circumstances and context outside of individuals also can contribute to those regulatory strengths. We Mm -hmm. think about, for example, interesting research that's been done about connections to nature, forest bathing, going out, being in a park, right, and that that can help with emotion regulation. So in the book and in the model, we, we want to, and I, I would want your listeners to know that we're really also talking about context outside of individuals. This is not just about what's happening inside the person. And the other piece is really that emphasis on the word portfolio, right, which is that n- none of these three buckets are one magic bullet, right, that it's really, as Sherry was saying before, about dose, about the variety of strengths that you may have um, that you can draw upon, um, and that we we're really trying to expand that toolkit, if you will, for people in our prevention model.
1: Mm-hmm. So if I'm a, I remember one man who I worked with 20 years ago, he was an immigrant, and the one strength he had was um, basketball. So he took a basketball, he, went to, he took his basketball, and he just went to the local courts and stood there. And he stood there for a few days until someone asked him in to a game. I think it was around thirteen at the time, and he he didn't know the language. He began to play. And so one of the things that a kid like that had, and he did very well, but he is that he, he was able to use his his physical skill, his basketball um uh, skills. And that put him in an interpersonal group of kids, very different from some of the other groups in that neighborhood. So it's like when you talk about the portfolio, it is the more the more options now. I don't know if he belonged to a congregation or a church or anything else, but the more you can draw upon, the better is, is what you're talking about in terms of we could have the best ad campaigns in the world. But if the individual doesn't have some strengths, they may fall on deaf ears.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I think your example is a, is a fantastic example because it really shows the interplay across different levels of the social ecology. So in the sort of the classic way that we're used to thinking about uh, prevention and resilience and coping and things like that, then, yeah, you know, it's the, that boy, I mean, he showed a lot of initiative, he showed, you know, some courage, he also showed some real, you know, like flexibility and creativity and like thinking about how he's going to meet people in a place where he doesn't really speak the language. But at the same time, you know, he, he didn't solve that problem by himself so, at the at the peer level, you know, there was also, you know, he eventually got support from those other kids in that neighborhood, and, you know, one of those kids that sounds like probably had, you know, more developed social skills or more developed empathy, or maybe they were just more observant or something like that, you know, something made that other first kid reach out to him and extend that invitation, and those right. are the kinds of skills that can be taught. And then even going beyond that, like at the higher level of the, you know, community area is that somebody made the investment in creating that community center and building those basketball courts. And if there wasn't any safe place for teams to gather in that community, then, you know, no matter how much initiative or courage that young boy had, like, what would he do to solve that that challenge?
1: Mm -hmm. There's so many, I love how you're saying it, there's so many dynamics that go into Play that one wouldn't think of when they think of prevention. You know. On that note, I want I want our listeners to hear why you think some prevention hasn't worked, and it's worked with some things, as you say, it's worked with technical problems, and then you use the word, but not with wicked
2: problems. Can
1: you differentiate that, Sherry? Uh,
2: sure. So, you know, I think a good example of between like a a technical problem and a wicked problem is the, is the challenge of motor vehicle accidents. So that's kind of a narrow scope of life. It's only something that, you know, have to deal with when you're driving in a car. And if you think about airbags, airbags have been a terrific, uh, intervention, prevention tool, not for the accidents themselves. I mean, for that, we'll probably have to wait for like self-driving cars and stuff, but, uh, Um, But it does help prevent severe injuries and and deaths when accidents occur. And it's kind of this great technical solution because you can just, you know, stick that in the car and then sort of forget about it. And then, you know, hundreds of millions of people have much higher levels of prevention for a serious injury or death anytime they get in a vehicle. And so that's kind of a good example of like a technical problem. Sherry, I'm just also getting, be,
1: I'm just Sherry, I'm just getting cued that we're out of time for this section, but that we'll come right back to that. But you, what you're just saying is sometimes this prevention and the person doesn't. Doesn't have to do anything about it with a technical problem. That's an example. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here talking with Dr. Sherry Hamby and Dr. Victoria Banyard, and they're discussing aspects from their wonderful new book, Strength-Based Prevention for Violence and Public Health Problems. Stay with us. We'll be giving many more examples on a very important topic. (music)
0: Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? channel
4: a brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others if you have that courage then brave hearts radio with brian reinvold is for you even if you aren't yet you'll want to still tune in to get inspired create your own story to share and change your life for the better listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere.
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
0: You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live.
1: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. Um, We are Dr. Sherry Hamby and Dr. Victoria Banyard, and we were just differentiating Dr. Hamby was differentiating there's really different types of problems that we want to prevent and we've had some success with the technical problems Dr. Hamby you were talking about seat belt uh, no the um the airbags
2: right well and i think that you can use the airbag example to uh, to see how a problem can become wicked too because One thing that occasionally happens is that a suicidal driver will intentionally disable that airbag. And so, something that most of us probably never think about and is there, you know, watching out for us without, you know, us having to actually do anything about it, so it can be very passive prevention when these. Other sorts of of forces of you know people, you know, purposely trying to harm themselves, or you know, or maybe they're bringing in all these other problems. Maybe they've been victimized, or maybe they have addiction problems, or they're under terrible financial strain, or whatever the case may be. That that will make that other prevention effort a lot less effective. And I I think that's a good example of the difference between technical and wicked because wicked problems are ones that have so many different forces impacting them and that people might have mixed feelings. Uh, You know, sometimes, for example, people with addiction, I mean, you might think that they would like to stop being addicts, but they're also, you know, the thing you mentioned earlier about, uh, for example, someone with emotion regulation problems who might be getting more relief from their drug use than they have from anything else they've tried. So they can really be ambivalent about whether they want to give that up or not. That's what makes a problem wicked is when there's not any really easy, obvious answer and that, you know, there's pros and cons to almost any choice that you can make.
1: Mm. It's interesting. I want my listeners to know that I asked my guests why they chose the word "wicked," and they did not choose the word "wicked." It comes from another, some other research. But I guess what it's 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 wicked is meant to imply complicated, painful, and destructive in some way. And we know people suffer with that. And it's that's what we're trying to think about. How do we how do we use strengths? to in some way a strength based program to to lend itself to some prevention T- tell us why you feel there are pro- the the formal programs or many of the programs that have been directly supposedly directed toward bullying violence
3: etc have not worked so i can i can start off a bit with that i i think there are a number of different limitations and, and both Sherry and I have worked in the lane of working with prevention, working a lot with prevention practitioners who are, you know, working very hard to try to solve these, these problems, which, which as we just talked about are really complicated. I think mm-hmm. there are a number of limitations in, in what we've been doing. I think Sherry mentioned one earlier where she talked about how many programs really focus more on admonishment, you know, like the Just Say No to Drugs, that it's really very much about don't do this without really much discussion or focus on what is it that people should be doing, right? So, um, so we're kind of missing that component. I think that our prevention efforts are also often very separated from one another so that we tend to feel like we need to have a program that focuses on bullying and then another program that focuses on dating violence and then another program that focuses on substance use and Even though these issues are all interrelated, we feel like if we're not talking about that specific topic and providing knowledge about it, um, that we're not really doing prevention. Um, And I think a strengths-based approach instead looks at some of the common protective factors, as we've described, and really tries to think about how do we try to build those up. Um, And I think that that can also contribute to overcoming another problem that a lot of our prevention programs often have, which is getting people to come to them. (laughs) So one of the lanes that I've worked in in prevention is prevention of sexual and relationship violence on college campuses. And, um, you know, lots of effort put into programs and yet still very difficult to get people to show up. And even when they're mandated to show up, they're not always engaged or paying attention. Um, And I think some of that, you know, again, is because uh, our programs have tended to focus too much on this sort of admonishment and knowledge rather than on this more strengths-based kind of skill-building sort of model. I think an example of how strengths can be helpful, even though I feel like we haven't taken it far enough, but one of the areas of prevention that I've been able to, been fortunate to work in is bystander intervention. And when practitioners began to do that work, which is basically um, when they stopped Doing prevention that was inviting people in to say come here to learn how not to be a victim or come here to learn how not to be a perpetrator of say sexual violence, right? Like nobody really wants to take a seat at that table because they don't really see themselves as a potential perpetrator, right? Mm -hmm. But when my standard intervention came in, it was more like, come here and learn some skills for helping your friends. Learn how to get involved, how to solve this issue, how to maybe interrupt something that's happening so that someone doesn't get hurt. And all of a sudden, um, where I was working on, on college campuses, students were interested in that. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, we had a focus group once early on with a young man who said, you know, this gave me a whole different way to think about this situation. Mm-hmm.
1: There is, um, I think it was the Green Dot program, which I was so impressed. Not only, just as you say, Vicky, were the kids interested, but then they added another component, which is to pair bystanders together so that if possible two people would intervene in a situation as bystanders to just drop down the, the, the anxiety about being the bystander but for sure kids would rather be the bystander than either the bully or the victim. And another example that came to mind when you mentioned uh, sexual violence on campus was a program, it was a show I did one of, years ago, maybe 2015, on campus they were going to do slut parties one of the fraternities was doing a big party slut parties and some of the one of the basketball players decided we're going to do an op, a different party we're going to do consent parties so they made t-shirts with consent parties well you can imagine the consent parties <laughs> took off and it was like when you i read the book and you said things like offer interventions that are even enjoyable or that kids can respond to without feeling stigmatized i i think that's a kind of crazy example as is the bystander invitation yeah yeah so so a great when, example in terms of prevention one of the things that you mentioned is that some studies haven't been replicated it's been it's been difficult to try to um, Get, make headway, I guess, with certain types of prevention programs to prevent violence, and we're hoping that some of your techniques will be much more successful have you, do you can you speak to some of these others um, either of you you know I didn't know what you meant by the use of the positive deviance norms. Can you exemplify that one?
2: Well, I think that uh, positive deviance. Is, refer- is a term that some other researchers came up with as well that refers to this idea that you can be different from the rest of the crowd, but in a in a prosocial direction. So again, uh, like going back to the example of the young boy at the uh, community center, uh, you know that first child that reached out to him and invited him to join a game, that would be an example of positive deviance. Oh, so, you know, good. none of the other okay. kids were really doing anything wrong. I mean, they weren't picking okay. on him yeah. or, yeah. you know, but they, but right, but they didn't take that extra, mm-hmm. you know, positive step towards him either. And so uh, so I think trying to learn how to promote that, I mean, there's lots of different ways to, to do that. I mean, you can just help, practice those kinds of social skills, or I I think the consent parties idea that you just mentioned is a terrific example of, you know, again, you know, working not just on individuals, but at that broader layer of the social ecology and and sending the message that this is the culture here, that we get consent, and, uh, you know, and and that those kinds of things can really have an impact, especially, uh, you know, something like a college campus where there's these new people entering the, the cultural group every year when the freshman class arrives. And so you have to have these different systems in place that communicate what the, what the cultural messages are that you want to convey. And you know, it is great that the students started that one because I think a lot of times, you know, we silo off our prevention efforts and we'll just have, you know, like something during orientation that'll be like, you know, don't drink too much and don't sexually assault anybody. And, uh, but, you know, there won't be something to sort of carry you through the year that shows that this is a community that respects each other, you know, not just with respect to sexual encounters, but across the board. And that's just something that really needs to, uh, you know, be, Extended throughout every aspect of interaction on campus, and why it is so important to think about uh, what sort of many cultures we're creating in these different schools, or military bases, or neighborhoods, or you know whatever the case may be. Mm, absolutely.
1: Um, so, in one of the other examples you gave, is nudges, Sherry. What? What do you mean by using nudges? I think parents and others would want to know. How is this a positive intervention?
2: So nudges is an idea that was first developed or most famously developed by um, Sunstein and, and Thaler. And it's an idea that uh, that you can make little changes in the environment and still really. Improve behavior. So, some of the class, like one of the, the funniest, earliest examples was um, at airports in. I think it was somewhere in Europe, I forget where right now, but they were were having a problem in the men's restroom of there just being a lot of, you know, what they were diplomatically calling spillage around the urinals, Mm -hmm. and they solved this problem, believe it or not, by just putting a little sticker of a fly at the bottom of each urinal, (laughs) and then that was giving them something amusing to aim at, (laughs) and it it cut down the cleaning problems by just this huge margin and um you know another famous example is That's taking true. in you know, whether in school cafeterias or grocery stores like instead of putting all the candy and snacks and stuff at the cash register like making sure that there're healthy choices that people see as they leave mm-hmm. um And, you know, those are other examples of how you can really tweak the environment to support what seems like, you know, individual behavior or individual impulse control, but is really a lot more environmentally driven than we think.
1: So interesting. Let me, we're going to, I'm going to ask you guys about some more of the examples, but one other thing that I read that I'm interested in our listeners hearing about is with your model, you say you're speaking about a shift. That's not an, ex- an exclusive focus on risk, but on the role that strengths play. S- and strength is not just the absence of risk. The idea of moving from risk to strategies, what, what, what is can you explain that, Vicki?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So a story actually comes to mind to illustrate this sort of shift in my own thinking maybe would be helpful to illustrate that point, which, which actually came about really early on in my research career, and I was really interested in studying coping and coping with stress, and I, I did a study that was focused on families who were dealing with homelessness. And you know that's obviously a a, a huge issue that a family mm-hmm. would have to deal with with a, right. a lot of you know negative stressors and 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 so of course when you read all about it in the research that was about it was you know very much trying to document the hardship that this caused and um, but we wanted to do something a little bit different in our study and so we got the idea to begin the interviews by asking and I was interviewing the parents to start by talking about their strengths. So we started the interview with, so tell me what you like about yourself. Tell me about something that you do well. And the very first interview that I did was with a mother um, in a shelter for families. And this question just stopped her cold, right? She was just paused and looked at me and said, oh my gosh, no one's ever asked me that. (laughs) Interesting. And and then and then she proceeded to not surprisingly right given what we now know about resilience to talk for quite a while about a whole variety of things that she was doing well um And that she liked about herself. And that was just this moment of, wow, just by asking a different kind of question, you help people reflect on different aspects of themselves and how infrequently we actually do that. And so that really is, is for me part of that reframe about how we start by asking different questions and offering different kinds of skill building in prevention. How that we start by asking that question about strengths and assuming that we're going to find them.
1: Well, from from the first minute of that conversation after your question, her definition of self to self and in your eyes was of somebody who had strengths. So, you know, you start out by allowing her to embrace a positive definition of self, rather than an embarrassed or or shameful definition of self as a mom in a homeless, you know, center. It's a, it's fabulous. It's it's so small and so big. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um. And it's how people believe how people believe their own sense of self. I mean, I think that's why I love the idea of the strength portfolio. Um, in terms of giving people almost the strength to be able to... You say one of the focuses of your book is to focus not on what they should not be doing, but on what they should be doing. And if you're sort of engaged with a more positive view of self, the chance of doing something is is going to increase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so he's moving, I'm not sure... Um, but I'm I'm hearing it on my end. Um, so let's let's go back for a minute because I think some of these other examples of positive interventions, just even as that one, um, are important for people to hear. Um, what is how do you use gamification as a prevention of violence?
2: So. Gamification is another relatively new idea that we think has really exciting potential. And I'm sure almost everybody listening is familiar with that in some way. So, for example, I wear a a Fitbit that keeps track of my steps during the day, right? So that's a great example of gamification because whenever I hit my goal, it, you know, it it buzzes and it does little fireworks and it's like yay, you hit your goal and uh, uh, mm. you know and so it's just basically trying to use the principles that have been developed in in video games, essentially, to try to promote the kinds of behaviors that we want to see. Um, you can do this in classroom settings. So sometimes people will, um, you know, kids can work for get points to work for stickers or small prizes or an extra 15 minutes of recess. I mean, it doesn't have to really cost anything saying, to implement.
1: We're
2: going to have to st- stop at that point. We'll,
1: we'll just hold that point, but that FIP, it's a great example of it. We've been told, That was just was talking, um, Dr. Amby was talking about the use of gamification for prevention measures. These are what people can do rather than what they don't do. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're talking with Dr. Sherry Hamby and Dr. Banyard, and they're drawing wonderful examples from their new book, Strength-Based Prevention for Violence and Public Health Problems. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com.
2: tune in every friday
4: to get your weekend
2: kickoff early join the legendary g keith alexander for what's hot harlem america the flagship show of the new harlem america digital network has something for everyone
3: Are you ready for a shake-up in your online entertainment? Then listen for the Information Edge with Darren Yancey. It's time to take a fresh look at the politics of our economy and its impact on you. Darren and his guests will explain these rights, legislation, and observations in sectors that affect people around the world every day. Imagine, a podcast that makes you stop and think. That's the information edge. Tune in every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. Um, in this final s- segment, it, it occurs to us that one aspect of prevention on everyone's mind, and we can not you can't really think of it without thinking of violence in some ways, but we're all very much keyed in on prevention of the spread of the pandemic and the spread of COVID. Um, and uh, you mentioned, you both mentioned that people have asked what from your... Uh, years of research and expertise, can you bring to the topic of um, prevention, of spread of the pandemic, or even the interpersonal stress that accompanies people's reactions to dealing with it? Sherry?
2: Yeah, we have, it is, of course, a huge amount of interest in, you know, prevention with respect to the pandemic right now, and Yeah, I think that this strength-based approach is really the the best way to approach the challenges there, too. Uh, So, you know, for example, with thinking at the social-ecological level, so thinking in terms of the environment, you know, I think that... Um you know I know people some people don't really like them, but I think you know mask mandates and things like that are are they' they're definitely going to lead to more mask wearing than leaving it up to individual behavior and uh, you know we have one here on campus, and you know although you know the faculty and the administration and the staff you know grumble about it just as much as the students, you know the fact that it's not really been left as an individual choice does mean that most of the time, you know, it's just when you're indoors, you know, that when you're indoors that you will see people wearing masks. Uh, You know, I think that there are environmental things. I've seen more and more stuff in the media about how people need to start shifting towards focusing on ventilation. And as we deal with this on a Mm long-term level, that we Mm -hmm. still tend to focus too much on individual behaviors and that each, you know, every single one of the 7 billion plus of us is going to have to do the right thing like 100% of the time. I mean, that is not a realistic plan for preventing the spread of a disease Mm -hmm. like this. So, yeah, thinking about, uh, you know, creating different kinds of spaces. I mean, here there's been a lot of effort to, you know, rearrange rooms and change the environment, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And then another factor that we talk about a lot is, you know, leveraging influencers. And so there's no question that, uh, you know, some of the people who have been, you know, giving voice to vaccine skepticism and and stuff like that have, have, you know, amplified the problem of people not taking, you know, well tested, you know, I mean, some of the most miraculous and amazing science and medicine that's ever been done in such a rapid pace. I mean, it's practically a miracle and, Mm -hmm. um, you know and it's a it's a shame that we're not doing a better job of you know amplifying those voices that are pro-safety and pro-public health. And uh, so, you know, those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about in terms of the pandemic. And then even in terms of messaging, in terms of focusing on, I mean, it worked so well at the beginning when they were like flatten the curve and, you know, protect the doctors and nurses. I mean, you saw this, you know, real outpouring of support in most quarters. And I, I think we need to keep looking for messages like that, and, and scientifically testing those messages, too, because I've seen some studies where they're testing different types of messages, and some of the ones that sound great to me you know, uh, are ones that actually don't work very well in practice, and so making sure that we're, mm-hmm. we're vetting those scientifically just the same way mm-hmm. we would vet a vaccine. hmm Right.
3: Yeah. yeah and it, I think if I could just add to that sure. another piece that, that we talk about in the book and that's relevant to Sherry, what you've been saying as well is that is I think a lot of times we rely a lot on people coming to prevention. So we rely a lot on trying to entice people to come over here and go to this program. And I think one of the other things that really has been happening during the pandemic is whether it's testing or whether it's vaccines, it's about mobile units, it's about getting things on street corners, bringing resources directly to where people live and work, rather than constantly having this view of prevention that somehow we need to get people over here to come to us to do some prevention work. We need to bring it into where people are, are living and working and playing. And I think I think that has also been um, very much a direction that a lot of communities have needed to go in, in in this work.
1: Absolutely. And the other thing that it makes me think of over all these two years is how many of my patients who are elderly and would not have been able to find uh, the way to get the vaccine it's like indirectly hubs of young, brilliant college kids and graduates of college. They made appointments for elderly people. Family members were taken care of. Neighbors were taken care of. So in terms of the interpersonal power behind prevention it was so heartwarming to me to hear someone just recently said she just can't get a booster she can't she can't do it then today she told me you know what i got a booster a friend called and said there was an open setting at the university where you can go those type of things are the subtle but the really powerful in prevention in terms of people connection
2: yeah, that's a terrific example. I mean, I think Vicky makes a fantastic point that it's just really, uh, you know, ridiculously hard, even though it might not seem that challenging to some of us who, you know, I work mostly at my desk and so yeah. I'm online all day. And so for me to like go to a website and scroll down and find an appointment, I mean, it's a little bit of a hassle. Uh, but for a lot of people, that is a major obstacle to getting a vaccine. And we should absolutely be encouraging people more to just walk in whenever or like mm-hmm. Vicky said, um, you know, going around with mobile units. I mean, we should be visiting every business in the whole country that has more than, I don't know, I mean, 50 employees maybe and just park, setting up in their parking lot and just making mm-hmm. it available to them. And we just should be, we we don't appreciate the, how many obstacles we are really throwing in front of people doing the right thing. Yeah. So
1: we're just about out of time. I did want our listeners to know, You mention in the book um, issues of culture and how they affect resilience. And I'm just going to read to listen. Is one of the things that Sherry and Vicky write in the book, and that is the importance of dealing with and recognizing the untapped wisdom of marginalized communities when you're thinking about prevention of violence, and the importance of accounting for culture. I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to share a take-home message about violence prevention and a strength-based prevention. Uh, before we end, Vicki,
3: do you want to start? Sure. I think my one closing sentence would be like the story I told a little bit earlier: is to is to look for strengths, ask about them, and assume you will find them, um, and then you will. <laughs> Terrific, Sherry.
2: Uh, you know, I will close with a quote from someone who was in one of my focus groups several years ago. That really helped put me on this track to shifting the way I thought about prevention is that she's like, you know, it's way more thrilling to think about how we can succeed in a thriving relationships than it is to, you know, be told that we should be worried about getting abused and, <laughs> you know, I just think and you know, she's put it more pithily than, than, than I could about like what we need to do to really promote people having happy and fulfilling lives.
1: It's terrific, it's that positive focus. I wanna thank both of you for your years and years of work um, uh, on resilience and you're in the field working with prevention of violence. I think we all owe you so much gratitude for the work you've done and your book, Where Can People Buy or Find and Order, Strength-Based Prevention of Violence and Public Health Problems? Where is the book available?
3: So thank you, you so could. much for having us on your show. Um, people can find the book on Amazon. It's also available from the publisher, which is the American Psychological Association. Just really appreciate the opportunity, Suzanne.
1: Okay, and if someone wanted to reach out to you, Vicky, how could they do that? Is the there best an email way to reach
3: me? I'm I'm at Rutgers on email.
2: Yep. Okay. social and work. I, how about you, Sherry? Uh, yeah, well, thank you so much, Suzanne. This was a great conversation, and I really appreciated the chance to to talk about all these issues. And um, in terms of reaching me, you can just uh, Google me; will will help you find me. But I also would encourage people to visit my website, which is uh, lifepathresearch.org perfect i want to thank i want to
1: thank both of you again i want to thank my listeners remember you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast this will be a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight not only on my site but on every platform itunes stitcher apple amazon spotify whatever you use to hear podcasts Psych Up Live is there, and this show will be available. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe, thanks, and be listening.